Well, it's great to see you this morning. And Matt, two weeks ago, started off our, our study on seven shaping virtues that builds a, a gospel culture. And he started off with the important subject of humility. And this morning, we're going to look at our second virtue of joy that will cultivate and help build uh, a gospel culture amongst us and in this church. When I was thinking about joy, my, my first reaction uh, when I thought about joy was to recall some of the old Sunday school songs. And remember those who are a bit older, I've got the joy bells in my heart. Yeah, or J-O-Y, J-O-Y, surely it must mean Jesus first, yourself last and others in between. It's a good way of remembering. Um, we taught the children. I thought about singing it, but I thought that wouldn't bring you joy. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. I'm particularly comforted in Psalm 100 that talks about making a joyful noise as opposed to any melodious sound. But the reason we taught these songs, because the Bible, contrary to popular belief, is a joyful book. It tells us of a joyful God. And it offers to all who believe a joyful gospel. And that's not what a lot of people think about the Bible. I read this definition of Christian joy. Joy is that deep soul-level happiness that is a result of beholding by faith the beauty and the wonders of Christ. It is rooted in Jesus, not in external circumstances and therefore cannot be easily displaced by external changes. Indeed, a Christian can only have deep and lasting joy in the midst of life's most difficult seasons. Our joy as believers, as Christians, is to be rooted in the character and promises of God, especially as they are related and revealed to us in Christ. In that very announcement of Jesus' birth by the angels, the angels said, I bring you good news, good news of great joy. Joy was going to be the hallmark of Jesus' life and Jesus' purpose in coming to planet Earth. And for those who have heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, and live in the good of the gospel, the natural response is one of joy. 1 Peter 1.8 says, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Inexpressible. Can't fully explain it all. Even the most difficult of times, even the challenges of life, that joy that we have. But that joy that we have, as Peter says here, is because we believe in him. We've received him. See, gospel joy is a contagious joy. And joyful believers will produce joyful churches. And joyful churches attract unbelievers. Romans 14, verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is an evidence as well as an expression of the kingdom of God. And Paul goes on in verse 18 to imply that without joy in our lives, our lives are not pleasing to God. So therefore, joy is an important virtue for all God's children. This subject is not sort of take and leave it. It is an important subject. And so this morning I have three points. One, God is a joyful God. Two, God commands us to be joyful. And three, God provides the source of our joy. God is a joyful God. 
you know, popular to um, uh, popular belief, uh, contrary, I should say, to popular belief, God's often portrayed, and I'm sorry about this, um, Andy, but he's often portrayed as some sort of headmaster figure who goes around sort of waiting to discipline the, anybody who's out of line. I don't know why we think of headmasters in that way, Andy, because you're not like that. <coughs> I haven't asked your children, but I think, think you. But some sort of headmaster figure who eager to punish at the first sign of sin and disobedience. And there are some folks who even think that, that Jesus had to twist God's arm. God, God was not for, his, his, for our salvation, to let him come to planet Earth to die for our sins. But our text here in Romans says the kingdom of heaven is of righteousness, peace and joy. Where's the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom is wherever God rules and reigns. Wherever God rules and reigns, there is righteousness, peace and joy. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, Paul wrote to the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And at the end of the same letter, Paul refers to God as he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now this word blessed here, the Greek word for it is makarios, which actually means happy. So these verses are telling us that we have a happy, joyful God, a sovereign, happy and powerful God. So 1 Timothy 1.11 speaks of the gospel as a happy God and 6.15 tells us that our happy, joyful God is a happy ruler. Spurgeon says of 1.11, the gospel is also the gospel of happiness. It is called the glorious gospel of the blessed God. A more correct translation would be the happy God. He goes on to say, well then, Adorn the gospel by being happy. In Zephaniah, one of the verses I love, we read that God rejoices over his people with gladness. He rejoices. He rejoices over you and me. I'm not sure we rejoice over one another that much, but he rejoices over you and me. God does. Isn't that wonderful? that glorious? An unhappy, miserable God would never go to the lengths of providing joy and happiness for his people. And we could never ask or expect grace from an ungracious God or kindness from an unkind God or joy from an unjoyful, miserable God. Is unjoyful a word? I wasn't sure. But you know what I mean. An unjoyful, miserable God. No. If he was not joyful... How could he be the source of what we desire most, which is peace and joy, don't we? We desire peace and joy. We desire the right standing before God. In the parable of the talents, Jesus says, of the one who increases talents, the master said to him, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who increases talents, the master said, well done. The master being God. In this, in this parable, enter into the joy of your master. God is joyful and wants us to join in his happiness. Which brings me to our second point. God commands us to be joyful. In Philippians 4 verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. So if Saying it once wasn't enough. Again, I say, rejoice. You getting it? The exhortation from the apostle comes with emphasis as he repeats his exhortation 
this exhortation to rejoice. He really wants to stress the importance of this command. To rejoice means to feel or show great joy or delight. When we rejoice, it it reflects what we're feeling, that joy within us, that, that delight that is within us. So he's saying to the Philippian church, feel or show your joy and delight in your salvation. Biblically, though, it's not just showing great joy or delight naturally, but by experiencing God's grace. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, rejoice always, without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It is both God's will and God's command to be joyful. This is will. If you want to know what God's will is, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. It's God's will and God's command to be joyful. And even with the challenges of life, the difficulties and the disappointments we experience, and even in suffering, we can still rejoice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul encourages us to not lose heart. He says that we can still rejoice because our sufferings, when we experience them, or as Paul puts it, light momentary affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Isn't that wonderful? But even in our suffering, God is going to use that and bring about, we can still rejoice and bring about something, preparing us. So often we just want to remove all the things that we're suffering in as opposed to embracing it. This year has been, this past year has been one of the most, if not difficult, years in my life. It has challenged my peace, my patience, my anger, my disappointments, and for my sinful judgment. It's been a challenging year. You get to my age, you'll have enough challenges, enough difficult times, but I've not known anything quite like it. But by calling on God's grace for right attitudes, patience in the challenges we have faced as a family, we have experienced God's joy. It's been difficult, but through it all, by God's grace, I can say with Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord has been my strength. Even through the tears, even through the heartache. And Habakkuk 3.18 says, I take joy in the God of my salvation. Difficult, challenging, but knowing God's joy. Daily focusing on the gospel, I believe, will bring fresh joy to our hearts. Reminding ourselves of our sinful state and what Christ has accomplished for sinners such as I. That joy cannot be tainted by the circumstances of this life. Go through the Apostle Paul in this verse I read in the Thessalonians. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Always. In all circumstances. That's God's command to us. 
But thankfully, we're not left with just trying to be joyful out of obedience. God provides the source of our joy, our third point. Spurgeon says, through faith in Christ's redemption, every believer is accepted in the beloved and stands in Jesus' righteousness, as fair in God's sight as if he had never sinned. Why, surely, here is a theme for overflowing joy. Today, if you're a believer, you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in Christ. Not anything to do with you, not anything that you've done, anything you've merited, but because of God's great love. Because of God's mercy and his grace. And we can stand this morning before a holy God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The great exchange took place. Jesus on the cross, Jesus took our our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. And without that, we wouldn't be able to stand before a holy God. Surely, as Spurgeon says, this is a theme for overflowing joy. Just considering that, just meditating on that, surely stirs our hearts afresh this morning. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your souls. We rejoice because, because we, see, we see him, even though we, we haven't actually physically seen him. We rejoice because we believe in him. And we believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Peter's saying this joy that we experience is so deep, so pervasive that at times it's inexpressible. I'm sure you know this. You've had times when, you know, I've listened to testimonies over the year of people who are going through really challenging times. And through the tears, you've seen God grace in them and a joy that is inexpressible. Christ and his salvation is the source of our joy. But I want to spend a few minutes now looking at some of the obstacles to our joy and some of the things that can help us grow in our joy. So let's first of all look at obstacles. Sin is probably the most common hindrance to joy. Sin is probably the most common of all hindrances, all obstacles to joy. Our joy is found not only in our right standing before a holy God, but is also the fruit of our communion with God. Sin and sinful attitudes affect the communion. When we sin, when we habitually sin, when we enter sin without repentance, without dealing with it, it affects our communion with God. And so often, so often we do the wrong thing. When we sin, we tend to run from God. Yeah? You tend, hmm, not feeling I want to pray this morning. Not feeling I want to get the scriptures open. Not feeling perhaps I want to even go to, to church on Sunday or to house group. We have a tendency when we sin to run. But God wants us to run to him. God wants us to re- restore that relationship. And so He wants us to run to him in repentance, acknowledging our sin. 
So I love this, just the one-liner from Spurgeon. Spurgeon's got loads of one-liners, I love them. The door of repentance open, opens into the halls of joy. The doors of repentance opens into the halls of joy. Yes, we've sinned. We do sin. We will continue to sin. But when we come to God in repentance, we restore our joy in him. When David messed up big time with his adultery with Bathsheba, he prayed to God in repentance. We read this in Psalm 51. He cried out to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I was thinking about this. Notice he didn't, didn't cry out. Um, he wasn't crying out for salvation. He wasn't crying out thinking God had departed from him, that he was no longer God's child. He recognised his salvation was still there, but he wanted to restore the joy of his salvation. He didn't lose his salvation because of his sin, but he lost the joy. And so he cries out to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want to ask this question. If we're not experiencing joy, we should examine our hearts and our lives to see if there are any sinful Attitudes such as envy, resentment, a critical spirit, unforgiveness. Jerry Bridges writes about these things. He says, the fruit of joy cannot exist when such attitudes have control of our hearts. All sin, be it an attitude or action, must be dealt with if we are to display the virtue of joy in our lives. Serious, these things, but there's a way. There's always a way. We sing the song, don't we, that just come to my mind of his, uh, his uh, sins are many, his mercy is more. What wonderful truth. It's a good song, but it's a wonderful truth. It's a glorious truth. Secondly, misplaced confidence. In Philippians 3 verse 1, Paul again tells the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. Throughout this letter, so it's a wonderful letter of joy, actually, Philippians. Uh, throughout this letter, Paul wanted to ensure that it was the Lord that they rejoiced in. And not to put our confidence and our joy in our flesh, in our good works, religious attainment, service for God. For the Jews, his concern was for their legalism. For today, it might be our our spiritual service, our spiritual disciplines or means of grace, even our faithfulness in witness. John Sanderson writes, even success in the Lord's work is a broken reed if we lean on it for security. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. It's in the Lord we rejoice. It's in him we find our joy. You know, when Jesus sent out the 72 to preach, they came back excited and joyful, declaring that even the demons submit to us in Christ's name. Can you imagine it? They've been out, Jesus sent them out, casting out demons. The demons were submitted to them. Came back all, all excited. What did Jesus say to them? He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. You read this in Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
He wanted to refocus them away from just the things they've done and the things they've done. Good things, bad things. But he said, I want you to rejoice there. Jesus was not discouraging joy and success of service in ministry. But he realises that comes and goes. That won't be there through the night. Through the days that you've been challenged and you go to your bed, he wants you there to consider the Lord, to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Cannot be, cannot be anything more significant, can it, to know that your name is written in heaven, my name is written in heaven. Can't be anything more important than that. I hope that the song we, we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If we want to have consistent joy, I would suggest this is the way we do it. We build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The third area, or C, trials and suffering. Trials and suffering can come to us in many ways. And perhaps health, financial challenges, and relationships are the most common. There are others, but they're probably three of the most common. I believe recounting the promises of God, preaching the gospel to ourselves, and finding a heavenly spirit perspective will give us joy through the trials remembering your names are written in the book of life remember the Lord is our joy James 1 2 says count says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds count it all joy we're going to see, as we're going to look at some other verses later, we'll see how God wants to use these times when you have trials for your eternal good. But recounting the promises of God, I was thinking about this, wow, there's so many, so many. Years, years ago, I don't know whether you might still do it, but have a promise box. People used to have a, pro- a box and they'd have all these promises in and they'd, they'd pick out one per day, you know. Um, I don't know, I don't do that, but it's, it's not a bad thing. Uh, but I want to just remind us of just, particularly when we're going through trials and suffering, of some of the promises of God. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Philippians 1 verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There are many other promises. We don't have time this morning. Perhaps, perhaps go through them in your group. But wonderful promises that we can hold on to through the trials of life. And I find uh, this portion of Scripture in Peter very helpful in giving me perspective during suffering and trials. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, he's speaking of our salvation guarded by joy, God. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuine of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wonderful, comforting, helpful, perspective-giving scripture. You see, seeing these trials as God's provision to refine our faith that may be found to result in bringing praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something we look forward to? Get older, get even closer, but you look forward to that those things that you went through by holding on to, to, to God in, in those times and rejoicing in God, keeping the faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And finally, I want to look briefly at some of the aids to help us grow in our joy. Aids to a growth in joy. First of all, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is an aid, if I can call him that, an aid to our growth in joy. The joy that we cultivate in and want to grow in is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It means that if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, it reminds us that the fruit of joy is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon says again, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of everlasting joy. And Paul's prayer at the end of this, his letter to Romans in 1513 was, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul was connecting the work of the Holy Spirit. He was praying for that. And I want to encourage us to pray along the same lines. It's a good prayer. That we will be filled with all joy and peace in our believing. So the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in you. Let's make that our prayer and pray that the Holy Spirit be filled, be filled in us, giving us all joy and peace. Secondly, confess and repent. We've touched on this a little bit. In Psalm 32, verse 5, this is David speaking of his sin. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And in verse 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Earlier we referred to David's sin, but here in Psalm 51, but here in Psalm 32, too, we see a progression that David is going through from, from guilt to faith. Faith in God's forgiveness. And it culminates in his singing and rejoicing. He didn't stay there. He didn't stay all gloomy and down. The prayer that he prayed, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We can see is coming out here. 
we can see that he's started off with confession and repentance of sin. Confession, I said earlier, well, Spurgeon said, it's, it's the hallway to joy. And let's be, let's be, I wasn't going to say this, it's not in my notes, so I'm trying to think what we say. I know what I want to say, but let's be honest and complete with God about our sin. In a situation recently, somebody said about somebody else, they said, well, they confess 10% of their sin and, and 90% excuse. We can, we, can, we can start blaming others for our sin. We can start to think of ourselves as victims. And so we start to excuse our sin. But God is so gracious. God is so gracious. Jesus is just waiting for us to come and open our hearts so that we can know that joy again. John Enser writes this. When our sins are forgiven and our consciences are cleansed, we are free to enjoy God himself and all that he has for us, vessels of his mercy. Forgiveness, then, is the foundation of God's work of grace, not the capstone. It's an entry point, not an arrival point for God's work of grace. We are forgiven in order that we might learn to live and enjoy living an upright and holy life in all fear and reverence to God, learning to live under the continuing influence of God's grace is another step from guilt to gladness. Forgiveness, going to God, repenting, acknowledging the sin, acknowledging our sin. Every day, I challenge us, every day, we should be confessing sin. We should be confessing sin and receiving and knowing that God, if we, if we confess our sin, the scripture says he's faithful. Is faithful to forgive us of our sin. Thirdly, putting our trust in God. Trust in the promises of God. See, the promises are nothing more than God's covenant to be fruitful to his people. God's promises reveal to us who God is. And it is this faithful God who makes his promises valid. Romans 15, 13 speaks of God filling us with joy and peace as we trust in him. Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. The works that Paul speaks here, in all things, God works for the goods, good of those who love him. The good works here, the works that he's speaking of, is not dependent upon your faith. But the joy and the comfort you receive is dependent upon you trusting in him. So God will do the work. He will do the work. There's not, there's not some qualification. It doesn't come with, it will only do this if you do whatever. So the work doesn't change, but, but while he's doing the work, by us trusting in him, by leaning into him, we receive that joy and that comfort. Let's trust the promises of God.
You know, I've often thought when we talk this way, let's trust the promises of God. I want us to trust the, pro- the God of the promise. <laughs> it's the God of the promise. The promises of God just reveal who God is. The an ex- eternal perspective. Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in that. An eternal perspective, which has been coming through most of what we've been talking about this morning anyway. Well, one of my favourite portions of scripture, Hebrews 11, 13, 16. Speaking of all the various uh, great people that God has used uh, in the the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews says this, These all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, Make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Our names are written in heaven. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. That's his promise. He's gone to prepare a place. And we are just strangers and aliens. This is not our home. Um, one of, one of um, uh, John Newton's books, he's constantly talking about the things that we go through because if we didn't, realize, if we didn't go through this, we, we, would, we would just want to stay here forever. But we're not here forever. This is not our forever. There's a forever to come. This is not our home. We're strangers and aliens. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for all those who have their names written in heaven. We are this morning justified by faith. We have peace with God and we have received the Holy Spirit that guarantees our eternal inheritance. There is coming a day when we will see him and we shall be like him on that day. No more aches and pains. No more cancers. No more tears. No more heartache. No more suffering. No more trials. You see, Jesus, in going to the cross, looked forward to that day. He had an eternal view when he said, for the joy that was set before him, Here's our example. He didn't, he didn't find joy in the cross. No. It was the joy that said, because he was looking to that day. Not in the cross itself, but the joy was in his obedience to the Father and the long-term view of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Us in this room this morning. That's why he endured the cross. And to help us through to in, in our joy and what we experience in life, we need to keep an eternal perspective.
The final point is give thanks in all circumstances. But Matt's going to deal with that in two weeks' time. (laughs) Because that's going to be the next virtue, our third virtue is gratitude. And I want to finish this with Jerry Bridges. So the choice is ours. We can be joyless Christians or we can be joyful Christians. We could go through life bored, glum, complaining, or we can rejoice in the Lord, in our names written in heaven, in the hope of our, an eternal inheritance. It is both our privilege and our duty, our privilege and our duty to be joyful. To be joyless is to dishonour God and to deny his love and his control over our lives. That's what he says here, it's practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and say to a watching world, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Let's pray. As I was preparing this, I felt the Holy Spirit direct me to to challenge us, to ask us some questions this morning. Some of you this morning may feel you've lost your joy. Maybe that's because of particular sins, or you're looking somewhere other than Jesus for the source of your joy. Scripture tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive. Where sin abounds, much more grace abounds. If you feel that's you, just right now in our seats, just confess it to the Lord. Confess both your lack of joy and, like David's prayer, maybe for a different reason, but restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And this morning, if you've never known the joy of the Lord and you want this joy, then I'd encourage you to turn to Christ. Repent of sins, receive God's forgiveness and leave here this morning, perhaps sometime this week, foreseeable future with the joy of your salvation knowing your sins are forgiven knowing God's mercy and God's grace through Jesus Christ Father thank you that the kingdom of heaven is of righteousness peace and joy thank you for the deep inexpressible joy you give to your children Father, forgive us when we sin and when we have misplaced confidence. Would you give us grace to keep our eyes on Jesus, even through the darkest trial? May we always live in the light of eternity. And may we please you and glorify you through our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.